What's your favorite way to learn? I like graphic novels because I can see who's talking. My grandma reads the newspaper to me. I like movies on TV. I play learning games on my dad's tablet. I like reading plain old regular books with lots of detail. This is Worlds Awaiting, helping children read, write, see, speak, think, and listen. Here's our host, Rachel Wada. Today I'd like to chat a little bit about inferencing. An inference is a conclusion that we draw through reasoning over evidence. It's what we might call an educated guess, meaning that we look at the evidence and then decide what the likely outcome might be. Inferencing is a critical literacy skill in many areas, but it is especially critical for us when we are reading. We make inferences all the time when we are reading. For example, we see a situation that a character is in, and then we infer what might come next. Authors sometimes play with our expectations, so they put a character in a situation where we might infer a particular outcome, but then they switch it up and surprise us with something different. This surprise would not be possible if we didn't infer what was going to happen in the first place. Inferencing also helps us monitor our reading comprehension so we can determine if we understand what we are reading. As we read, we infer what comes next. And then when we get there, we look back and see if we were right or wrong. If we were wrong, we might need to go back and reread. But reading is not the only place inferencing is critical. It is also very important for scientific literacies. For inferencing is the skill we generally use to form a hypothesis when we take what we know and add in new observations to form a conclusion. I clearly see that inferencing is an essential higher-order thinking skill that allows us to engage in all kinds of important literacy tasks. So the question is, how do we engage children in tasks that allow them to develop inferencing skills? One way is to start with questions. As we read together, we can pause and ask questions. What do you think is going to happen next? What makes you think that will happen? These kinds of questions pull on inferencing by asking children to draw a conclusion, but also at the same time state what evidence helps them to draw that conclusion. Another great reading activity that engages inferencing is using riddles, because they make us make guesses based on the information given in the clues. Even a little scientific experiment or natural observations in our world can engage kids in inferencing. Such as on a walk when we see a feather on the ground, we might ask simple questions about what observing that feather might help us to know about the bird that was there. So here at Rachel's World, we are excited about these simple and direct ways that we can use to help build children's inferencing skills, because we know that our 21st century learners are going to need to be really good at inferring. It's no secret that grandparents dote on their grandchildren. But have you ever thought about doting in a way that can make a lasting difference, actually giving those youngsters a leg up on life? Today we'll hear from one grandfather who dotes with a purpose, and that purpose is literacy. Rachel talks to Brad Wilcox and his daughter Wendy about the way this plays out in their extended family. Brad Wilcox is a professor in the Department of Teacher Education at Brigham Young University. He's lived in Utah, Ethiopia, and Chile, serving as an advocate for children and learning wherever he has gone, and his daughter, Wendy Wilcox Roseboro is a mom and author. Here's Rachel with Brad and Wendy. Today we're in studio talking to Brad 
and his daughter, Wendy. So we've got a father-daughter team today. Let's delve into a little bit about this. Brad, you're a granddad. Wendy has given you some lovely grandchildren. <laughs> Let's talk a little bit. How do you engage your grandchildren with literacy? What are some of the things that you do as a grandfather to help to help open that world to your grandkids? I love to read to my grandkids. In fact, I have a picture of each grandchild as he or she came home from the hospital of me reading a book to them. How special! And so I have a picture of each of my grandkids. There's five of them now. And I've got that picture of me reading that first book to them. And uh, and I love that. And it's funny because some people laugh at me when they see the pictures and they say, oh, the baby doesn't even understand the book. And I say, that's not the point. I said, the point is to share that warmth and to make sure that that child is being flooded with language and flooded with love. And so the book allows for that time to connect and bond. And even, I don't think it's too early to begin reading to children, even when they're just tiny little babies, because then they grow up feeling that connection to you and to warmth and to the warmth of the book. I don't think the magic of reading to children is always once upon a time. I think the magic of reading to children is once upon a dad, once upon a mom, once upon a grandpa. And I love that uh, Wendy's little son, when he sings, the wheels on the bus go round and round, and the mama on the bus goes... What does the mama say? I love you. I love you. I love you. And, she, and he sings a song. And when we get to the grandpa on the bus, the grandpa on the bus says, read a book, read a book. Love it. Read yeah. a book. And that's, that's how the children associate me with books. They see that as something that grandpa does with them. So, Wendy, how have you seen that strengthen uh, the relationship be- between your dad and your kids? Well, I think same thing. The baby may not understand, but as these kids have gotten old enough, um, they see that picture and they just associate grandpa with reading. That's why we do the grandpa on the bus reads a book. Um, But he also, so my brother has three girls and then I have the two boys and they live in California. And so they can't be with grandpa all the time like my kids can. And it's so fun that often we'll come over to the house and he will be Skyping with them. And what they Skype him for is to read a book. So he'll sit there and read story after story and show him the pictures over the computer. And that's what they do with Grandpa. And so I just think that's interesting. Grandma, they'll talk to her and they'll talk to us. But with Grandpa, they always say, read me a story, read me a book, get that bear book. And so that's just kind of what he does. That's his thing. Yeah, they've learned yeah. to they they've learned that association, which I love. I, and I also promote it by giving them books. I like being known as the the one that's going to give them a book for a birthday, a book for Christmas, and they always know it's coming. And uh and so they they always know that that's the gift they're going to get from me as well. That makes a lot of sense. And I I think it's interesting here, this context, there's some context here of this multi-generational love of reading, that it's not just the parents that are doing the reading, but it's the grandparents. But I also think in this particular case, it's interesting about the male role models, because I think a lot of times, particularly in their schooling and all of these things, 
kids don't get those male role models of reading, particularly boys for boys, but girls as well. They need those male role models. So how do you think that that kind of multi-generational um, and also the kind of gender-specific situation here helps enhance their engagement with literacy? There is some research that says that parents who read to children and grandparents who read to children make a difference. But there is some that does specifically pinpoint dads and grandpas saying that as children see men in this role, that that has a strong impact and a strong influence over their motivation to read and the types of books that they choose. Yeah. I'm even thinking as a child for me that it was often dad who read to us. And so I was used to having dad read. But my husband reads to our kids as well. And he's a lawyer and he tends to like informational books and things that I would not choose to read that he'll read. And so for me as a child, I remember thinking that my dad was a source of information, just like a book. And I think my kids will look to my husband as a source of information as well, that it's not just for fun, but that they know something and that those books have helped them to learn something. And you see the libraries and you automatically assume somebody's smart and... I like that point because I think sometimes we forget that reading isn't just for pleasure. There's information needs and other things. And particularly as children begin school and start the schooling, that's a really important lesson that they need to learn that books contain this other kind of thing, too. It's not just pleasure, but there's information as well. Yeah. And the reading reading is relational. You build relationships with authors. I mean, think about how often you've bought a book just because of the author's name. Mm-hmm. I mean, Wendy does that all the I time. Do all the yeah. time. And you build relationships with characters. Think how often you want to buy a sequel because you're dying to find out what's going on with the characters that you've come to love. But I think that relationship also extends not just to the characters and the and the authors, but it extends to the people who have shared that book with you. And so the relationships that are being built are being built between others who kind of share that inside world. With little children, it's easy to plunk them in front of TV and leave so that you can get something done. But you can't really plunk them in front of a book and leave. You have to sit down with them. And it uh, puts you in a position where that relationship becomes center stage. And that's what's motivating. You were mentioning before we started recording today, Rachel, how you've interviewed so many people and how they, they, when you say, what was a favorite book from childhood? And they all just open up and it's almost like they go back to being children because they remember these books. But it's not just the books. They remember the time they shared with grandpa, the time they shared with grandma, the time they shared with parents and teachers. Well, Wendy, what books do you think your boys like the most when when grandpa comes over? Is there one that they always go back to? Oh, there's some they love. (laughs) They'll always go back to the same ones. They really like Dr. Seuss books. And the Elephant and Piggy books. Those, I love those Elephant and Piggy. books are delightful. <laughs> they're funny and they're short and they're easy. And so. it's amazing because the humor is quite, quite you know, high level. Yeah. And yet the, the kids will catch it. Yeah. 
it's very sophisticated, that humor. And I just love the personalities that the characters have. They just have such very distinct, sweet little personalities. And you know how they're going to behave because of their personalities. Yeah. And yeah. Uh, Wendy also, her, her son loves, loves, loves Sandra Boynton. Yes. So do I. Yeah. <laughs> well, and her illustrations, too, are just lively and fun. And, and again, that rhyming, repetitive, the words beautiful language. Yeah. He'll, start, he'll start kind of memorizing it and then saying it along with us. Which is really the precursor for early reading, early literacy, right? Definitely. They are reading the book. <laughs> you know, they're not actually decoding the words, but they understand that the words have meaning. And that's the first step to making sure that they're readers later. Yeah, excellent. Well, thank you so much, Brad and Wendy, for sharing your experiences today as grandpa and mother to some wonderful kids and how maybe others can learn from your experiences. We appreciate it. Thank you. Yes, thanks. That was literacy expert Brad Wilcox and his daughter Wendy talking about the influence grandparents and parents can have on children by reading aloud. Next, Rachel welcomes children's and young adult literature expert Karen Coates. They'll discuss the history of mystery and detective fiction with special emphasis on this genre for children and young adults. Mysteries for Children arrived on the scene much earlier than most of us realize. Coates is a professor of English at Illinois State University. She publishes widely on the many ways youth literature both responds to and shapes contemporary culture, as well as how it supports cognitive and emotional growth. She's also author of multiple books on children's literature, including her newest book, The Bloomsbury Introduction to Children's and Young Adult Literature. Here's Rachel with Karen Coates. We're on the phone today with Karen. Welcome, Karen. Hello. Karen, you have some expertise to share with us in the history of mystery and detective fiction, particularly for kids and young adults. So to start off, tell us a little bit about what is that history? Where, where did this all start? Well, I think we can start it at the very beginning of human history. Um, as soon as we started, I mean, the, the world is a very mysterious place. And humans are driven to figure it out. I mean, part of it has to do, from my perspective, that um, we're made in the image of God and we're trying to find out more about our created world and our creator. So not everybody thinks that way, but um, I think that that's part of the reason why we're so curious about things. But in terms of literary mystery, actually it has its roots in the investigation of true crime, which would have started, oh, back as early as Daniel Defoe with his pirate stories in the 1700s. And interestingly, for kids, the, the mystery genre started about the same time. There's, a, there's sort of a confluence of gothic mystery for adults and then what we would call explained supernatural for kids. And one of the first books ever published for kids was The History of Little Goody Two-Shoes, where Little Goody Two-Shoes is shut up in a church and is very frightened by all the sounds she hears, and it ends up that everything has an explanation. And so that's part of the, um, the legacy of mystery for kids, is that the world has explanations, and we don't need to go outside of our own experience. Well, we might need to go outside of our experience, but we don't need to go outside of, um, we don't need to leave things a mystery, so we can explain them. Um, 
for adults, of course, Charles Dickens and Wilkie Collins, they were starting in the, um, in the 1800s. <laughs> it's kind of a, a confluence of, again, material circumstances where when you started getting real police work and real detective work, you also started getting books about detectives who could figure things out. And that grows along with the growth of cities where you didn't know who was doing crime. You know, if, if you were in a smaller town, everybody knew everybody, people knew who was, who was perpetrating any sort of dastardly deeds. But once you got to the city, there's some anonymity. And, then, and so the idea of a detective who could come in and solve mysteries and solve crimes became very attractive. And so in America, we had Edgar Allan Poe. In uh, Britain, we had Arthur Conan Doyle. We had Sherlock Holmes. And so that's where things really took off. But for kids, then, again, in the 1920s, you had Agatha Christie and Dorothy Sayers doing the British house mysteries. But then you had the Stratemeyer Syndicate, and they came up with the Hardy Boys in 1927 and Nancy Drew in 1930. And so these were not just adults solving crimes. These were, these were teenagers who had the capability, they had the, the physical strength, they had the emotional strength, they had the mental strength to solve crimes. So built in, there's sort of this ideology that kids are capable, teens are capable, and if they use their brains and then keep their wits about them, then they can solve any crime or any, they can solve any problem that comes their way. And since then, this has just been a robust genre for kids. We have Cam Jansen. We have all kinds of these Encyclopedia Brown kids who actually go to the library and look up stuff and figure out, use their, their um, intellectual capabilities to solve crime and to solve mysteries in their town. And that's continued up to the present day with Peter Abrahams and, and um, actually Christopher Paul Curtis. He writes... Um, some mysteries along with his other things and Sheila Turnage has been writing good solid mysteries Rebecca Stead all of these authors who are writing today are continuing in this series Karen that that is so fascinating thank you for sharing that because I I don't think a lot of people realize how rich and broad this genre is particularly for kids and how much it's evolved and changed uh, over time let let's for a minute revisit the Nancy Drew and Hardy Boys and the Stratemeyer Syndicate I think a lot of people take those books for granted and they don't really understand the the unique complexity and kind of historical place that those books play um, in the history of children's literature and in the history of mystery children's literature. So what do you think it's important to understand about those books in particular and what their impact on the genre? Well, I think it's, it's important to understand that they are, they were not very popular with librarians. So this is what, what they did was they sort of brought children's literature, the kind of books that kids wanted to read, into the mainstream. And we still have a little bit of that um, tension nowadays, where it's like, what do kids want to read, and then what do adults want them to read? And kids like action and adventure, they always have, boys and girls of all races and ethnicities, like mysteries that they can solve alongside their characters. And they like this idea that, they are competent to do this kind of detective work. That, that's, that's sort of what accounts for the appeal for kids. They're also very predictable. 
they all follow a certain structure, and it's the same. It's the same with adult fiction, and I would say it starts in middle grade, because this is when they start understanding psychological motivation. Um, they've developed the capacity to uh, their, their brains have actually developed the capacity to look for logical solutions to problems, and so as their brains seek out these logical connectors, then the mystery genre reinforces that. And so you get a lot of mysteries today. Um, well, but also that's where kind of it started. Is this we've got a we've got in the 1920s we have an America to rebuild and to figure out how we're related to um, the rest of the world. And so a lot of the early Nancy Drews, unfortunately, put their criminals as as some sort of um, dark-skinned other not necessarily um, Middle Eastern, but they usually have accents. <laughs> they, um, they're usually immigrants. So the early Nancy Drews and the early Hardy Boys tend to solidify national identity as young and white and middle class. So this sort of reflects, I mean, if you want to use these mysteries they, as a barometer of what our, what our fears are and our a barometer of what our hopes are for our young people and where we locate crime. That's what these series do. They sort of, but, but in a romantic way. Okay, so these kids are, they're, they're in danger, but never, they never die. They are facing with criminals, but the, criminal, the criminality is always motivated by something, usually financial greed. And, and they're really couched in these moral narratives. So, Nancy Drew and the Hardy Boys are always on the right side of any sort of moral question. So this helps us understand how we write for children. We don't give them heroes to, to aspire to who are morally ambiguous. I mean, if you think about adult detective fiction on TV, the criminals are always better off than the cops. You know, the cops drive these crappy old cars and, and have divorces, and it's all awful. <laughs> Whereas the, the criminals have, live in shiny mansions, and so it's, it's an ambiguous message. We don't do that with kids. We give them this solid national character of morally upright, unfortunately mostly white characters who are guarding their small-town communities against the incursion of nefarious characters. So fascinating. I I could listen to you all day because this is so <laughs> fascinating to me, and I hope our listeners are finding it fascinating because it really is interesting how this is placed in our society, and these become not only just wonderful reads that you know we find these great benefits of, of kids who are out there solving problems and doing things, but they also become politically interesting when we look at you know that kind of white middle class, the dark other kinds of structures. So as we finish up our conversation today, Karen, maybe give us a, a tip or a pointer of how do we deal with that as as readers and as adults who are having kids read these? I don't think Nancy Drew is going to go away anytime soon. So how do we kind of navigate those goods and bads of these types, particularly this particular type of mystery? Well, I think we need, I think the most important thing about any sort of literary experience is the conversations that we have around it. And one of the things that that you want to be talking to is calling their attention 
to these aspects and calling their attention to the fact that these are all white characters and the, and the villains tend not to be white. But at the same time, give them the credit that they don't just identify with characters who look and act like them. That, that, um, and I think that's one of the, the things that is happening more and more. We kind of expect that the only way that kids can read is through identification, and the only way they can identify is through visual markers, and that's just not the case. Kids have multiple selves inside them, especially teenagers, and they're starting to they, they want to figure out what their place is in the world. So, yes, they do need visual models, but at the same time, that's not all they need. They need intellectual models. They need models of competence that they can aspire to, and those models don't always have to look like them. Girls have been what we call cross-reading forever because there's so many male characters, and I think it's a, it does a lot of kids a disservice to think that they can't cross-read across race and ethnicity lines and even religious lines. They, we pick and choose the characteristics of a character that we want to identify with. We don't swallow them whole. And that, I think, is important to talk about, to talk through. Like, what about this character seems admirable? What about this character is like you? What about this character is not like you? And what about this character would you never be or never think of or, ne- or don't admire? And so those are the kinds of conversations, I think, that are really important to have around these things and because because kids do read them a lot of young stuff especially um mysteries for younger kids are featuring animals chet gecko and you know you're you're not he's he's a detective and then there's um hermelin the mouse who's a detective so these are metaphors they're visual metaphors and so the question is to talk about what those metaphors might suggest to them about characteristics that they might want to emulate Karen, that is a great suggestion, and I really second that. Really, these kinds of conversations are the things that are important and helping kids extend the models they have in all kinds of aspects is really what reading is all about, whether it's mystery or fantasy or science fiction or any other genre. But thank you so much, Karen, for sharing your deep insights with us today about this wonderful genre and its history. Well, thank you for having me. Children's Literature Specialist Karen Coates, talking about the fascinating history behind children's mystery and detective fiction. We finish up the show with a book review from Anne-Marie Marchant, adult and teen services librarian at the Provo City Library in Utah. She introduces a middle-grade book entitled Vanished, True Tales of Mysterious Disappearances by Elizabeth McLeod. Vanished, True Tales of Mysterious Disappearances by Elizabeth McLeod. Do you remember watching the TV show Unsolved Mysteries in the 90s? I always found the host slightly too creepy, and the stories as well, a little too creepy to enjoy, but I was intrigued by the facts and the mysteries portrayed. So even though it was a little too creepy, I still watched anyway. This nonfiction book discusses six true mystery disappearances, from the lost colony of Roanoke in 1590 to the Icy Franklin Expedition in 1848, and the Mary Celeste, a legendary ghost ship which disappeared in 1872. Next, the mystery of the missing Russian Amber Room in 1941, the Alcatraz prison break in 1962, and finally, the art heist at the Gardner Museum in 1990. I was familiar with the Gardner Museum because I visited Boston a few years ago, and I had a general idea about Alcatraz and the other um, happenings on that island. 
again from a trip that I went to when I was younger, but the other stories were largely very new to me. The section on the Amber Room was my favorite of the bunch. It's this beautiful room filled with gold and lots of um, intricate designs and jewels. And just learning about its history and how the room had moved from place to place over the years and now is nowhere to be found was super interesting. Um, this book is filled with colored pictures, sidebars, and maps. It's perfect for anyone that enjoy, enjoys a true mystery tale. Um, I would say that this is good for 12 to 18, but even maybe some fourth and fifth graders might be interested as well in this, this book. I'd recommend it to anyone. Anne-Marie Marchant, Adult and Teen Services Librarian at the Provo City Library in Utah, reviewing a middle-grade book entitled Vanished, True Tales of Mysterious Disappearances by Elizabeth McLeod. We'll look forward to more young reader book reviews in the future. For a full collection of book reviews, check out the World's Awaiting Book Reviews link on our website at byuradio.org. Thanks for listening to World's Awaiting. Tune in Saturdays at 1.30 p.m. and weekdays at 8.30 p.m. Eastern on BYU Radio, Sirius XM, Channel 143, on the TuneIn app, and at byuradio.org.